Support for the WSHU podcast Off the Path comes from Webster Private Bank with personalized wealth management services to help clients move forward confidently. WebsterBank.com slash private banking, member FDIC. And from Au Pair in America, cultural exchange childcare for more than 30 years. AuPairInAmerica.com. Danbury, Connecticut calls itself Hat City, USA. It was the biggest hat manufacturer in America for more than 100 years. The industry eventually left Danbury, but you can still see bowlers and fedoras on signs and billboards all over its streets. Those hats also left behind another, more complicated legacy. This is Off the Path from WSHU Public Radio. I'm Davis Donovan. I uncover history's little-known stories anywhere from New York to Boston. One of the best places to learn about the country's early hatting industry is the Danbury Museum. On its grounds is a clapboard house with wooden floors. Hi, welcome to the John Dodd Hat Shop. Bridget Girton is the museum director. She describes this replica of a hat shop from the 1790s. So there would have been uh, many more tools uh, on the floor, on the walls. Um, there would have been large vats of water. There would have been a fire roaring in the fireplace. One of the earliest hatters in Danbury was Zadok Benedict, who opened his hat shop just after the Revolutionary War. One morning, Zadok Benedict got out of bed, stretched, put his feet into his shoes, and discovered a hole. Luckily, there was a pile of fur in his room. He put it in his shoe, he slipped his foot back into the shoe, and he walked on the fur all day long. At the end of the day, Zadok returned home only to discover that the fur that he had put into his shoe had turned into felt. And thus, felting was born in Danbury, Connecticut. That story's not true. Felt has been around for thousands of years. That tale was kind of an urban legend Danbury hat makers used to tell amongst themselves. But Girton says it's a fun yarn and a good way to teach kids. This is a good description about how you can uh, take raw fur and uh, with the application of, of heat, pressure, and, and water, and, and possibly Zadok Benedict sweat, you can turn that raw fur into felt. The actual process is a little more complicated. Adding hot water, adding cold water, adding pressure, and then forming all of that large fur pile into basic felt and then shrinking the felt down so it can be maneuvered in, in a manner that uh, creates some sort of style so that it can become a hat that fits very proudly on a head. Felted hats made from fur were typical of the day, and hat makers made maybe two or three hats a week. Then the Industrial Revolution kicked into gear in the 19th century, and Danbury was a great place to be a hat maker. We had, and we still have, uh, a ton of water. So if you're making a fur felt hat, you need a tremendous amount of water. Hat factories sprung up along the city's river, called the Still River, in the 1820s. Each factory had hundreds of workers cranking out hats by the thousands on sprawling floors. When they were done, they dumped the dirty water into the river. We talked to uh, some of the older Danbarians who will remember this well. Our still river in Danbury was notorious for running whatever color. Uh, the hat factories were dyeing the, the hats that day. The hat trade drew immigrants from around the world. The city's population exploded. You might see a broadsheet that says, hey, and you know, I'm, I'm making it uh, much uh, much more funny than than it would have been, but you know, hey, come to Danbury. You know, we've got we've got jobs. We want to put you to work. Girton says the conditions at these jobs weren't great. 
The factory floors were hot and steamy and smelled like a wet dog, and it was too loud to hear yourself think. You have steam, hot water, cold water. You are dripping, putting your hands right into a chemical bath. Your hands might be swollen and discolored by the end of the day. You're doing very repetitive labor over and over and over again. One ingredient in those chemical baths was mercury. Gerton says mercury makes a nice smooth felt and it speeds up the hatting process, but it's also dangerous. Unfortunately, when the mercury was exposed to that hot water, cold water pressure, you end up with workers who are inhaling mercury, who have cuts on their hands and are dipping their hands in and out of of mercury baths. Steam from the baths filled the rooms, condensed on the ceilings, and dripped back down on the workers. One report called it a rain of death. Johann Verakamp is a scientist at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut. He studies mercury poisoning and its effects. Nervous disorders, uh, sometimes to um, shakes and tremors and walking was a, was a gait. Workers got irritable and forgetful. They were always drowsy and they couldn't sleep. Their teeth fell out. There are a whole range of um, medical observations that are typical for mercury exposure. And the headmakers in Denbury uh, had them all, and so it was known as the Denbury Shakes. Some employers blamed the Danbury Shakes on alcoholism. They wrote their employees off as shiftless drunks and denied them workers' comp. Verakamp says there were outward similarities between alcoholism and mercury poisoning, as long as you don't look too close. Severe alcoholism can lead to tremors, and then also walking in a funny way was was by kind of a twisted upper torso. You could think of somebody who's drunk and, and kind of waddles over the streets. But one could also say that the factory owners were somewhat in denial, knowing possibly in the back of their head that this exposure to mercury was not the greatest thing in the world. Scientists have known about the ill effects of mercury since at least the Civil War. The Connecticut Board of Health started to monitor the use of mercury in hatting factories in the 1880s. But they didn't do anything about it because it didn't seem to affect the people who wore the hats. Verakamp says eventually the workers realized they were being poisoned. And they organized themselves in a union and started to put pressure on the management of the factories. Hat factories in Danbury finally stopped using mercury in 1941. It was replaced with a chemical that wasn't poisonous. Hats went out of style a few decades later, and Danbury suffered the same ravages as many other industrial towns. The last hat factory closed in the 1980s. There's debate about whether there were harmful levels of mercury in the Still River today. Johann Verakamp studied the river in 2002. He found levels higher than anywhere in the state. Of course, that 150 years of hat making have left a legacy of polluted uplands and soils, and, and, and yards in, in Denbury that is, is pretty amazing. An op-ed by the city's environmental coordinator at the time said the kind of mercury found in the Still River soil wasn't the most dangerous variety, and in most places it was within limits set by state guidelines. The city says it can't report on its current mercury levels, but one hat factory in Danbury that tested for the highest level of mercury in 2002 underwent a $2 million EPA cleanup. The city just donated that land to a woman's shelter. Johann Verakamp says whether or not Danbury citizens should worry about mercury 
there's a lesson to be learned. We have the kind of the, the luxury of looking back and say why the people in the 1800s didn't realize that this was bad. And I always worry that we are now exposing ourselves to other environmental pollutants and that 30 years from now people would say, why didn't they were more careful? They must have known that it was bad for you. Mercury lingers in more ways than one. It's worked its way into our language. Hat-making in the U.S. was big, but most of the factories were in England, where mercury was also used. And it's from England we got that well-known phrase, mad as a hatter. This is Off the Path from WSHU Public Radio. I'm Davis Donovan, off in search of compelling stories on the road from New York to Boston. 